Hello, listeners. I'm happy that you joined us for another exciting episode of Standing Post. I mentioned to you last month that I would be interviewing Mr. Matthew O'Neill, who works in our criminal investigative division. However, due to a scheduling conflict, we had to move his interview to October. For this episode, I will be sharing my interview with Special Agent Joan Hoback, who will talk to us about the Secret Service's contribution to protecting our nation's children. In this episode, she highlights the Secret Service's partnerships with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children through their Kids Forensic Investigative Response and Support Team, or Kids First, and the Operation Safe Kids program. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Joan. Welcome to the podcast. Would you like to uh, explain a little bit about yourself and uh, for the people that are listening today? Sure. Hi, Cody. Thanks for having me here today. Uh, my name is Joan Hoback, and I am a Secret Service agent. I've worked for this agency for about 15 years, had a very exciting career, um, and I'm excited to share my stories with you today. So the listeners might not know, and something that I, I learned about while my time here in the Secret Service is that agents have three different phases. First phase of their career is usually coming in and getting their feet wet and trying to get the, the understanding of the organization. Second phase, they go into a protective division. And then the third phase is more of a supervisorial. Uh, you're starting to work a little bit in the higher levels of the organization. And so in your phase two, what detail were you located with? So my phase two assignment was spent in the protective intelligence division. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it, was, uh, it was very fascinating to me because it aligned with my psychology degree. Um, in that division, we would um, assess and analyze and evaluate potential threats to our protectee, our president, and other you know, foreign dignitaries and former presidents. So um, I had a lot of um, interesting experiences in that division with people that were mentally ill. So I got to, you know, kind of, that was my niche because, you know, I was always interested in, in, the, in the mental health field before this and, and children. So, um, you know, I, I spent four years doing that. I, I really enjoyed that. I traveled all over the world. I've seen many different countries. I got to travel um, in the president's motorcade, you know, behind Marine One. Um, it was, you know, a great, a really great experience, and I believed that what I was doing was important. So I really did um, enjoy that uh, protective phase of my career. So, Joan, with the podcast and for the listeners, we always like to start it off with a little bit of a familiarization and be able to kind of go with your background a little bit, kind of talk about where you come from, how you found out about the Secret Service, and kind of what led you up to, to today. Right now, my current position is that I am an assistant special agent in charge, one of the assistant special agents in charge of the Forensic Services Division, and also my agency's liaison to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. I'm the type of person who loves kids. I always liked working with kids. And I think that it is no surprise to anybody who knows me that I actually ended up in this type of position, given the, um, the background and my exposure to working with kids and my desire to do so. So outside of the organization, do you uh, do other programs with children or do you volunteer for any other organizations? So when I, I I've, I've worked with kids since I was 12 years old. I mean, from babysitting kids to in high school, I took a certification program. So I worked with kids that had special needs, worked with gifted kids. And when I went to college, I 
kind of just followed the path of early childhood education. So it was, it just made sense that I would continue on to work with kids. I did many internships where I got to work with school psychologists and social workers and things like that. So I just feel like working with kids has always been part of my life. Was there ever a time when you're younger that kind of stands out to you right now where that kind of just clicked and said, I'd like to work with kids in the future? There wasn't one moment. It just felt right. You know, I just, I just love being around kids. I, I have kids. I love having kids. And it's just one of those things where you, you do it and it just feels really good. So after your experience of working with kids in those situations and as you uh, continue going down that path, what made you arrive and what made you want to join the Secret Service? My decision to join the U.S. Secret Service was, I think, a shock to a lot of people and even to myself. Everybody just assumed I would be a school teacher or work with, you know, as a child psychologist or something in the mental health field because it was just something I always loved and they knew that. And in fact, before I had the job, or before I received the job offer for the Secret Service, I worked in a facility that helped to reform troubled children. Kids were remanded to this type of facility, and they had to spend a certain amount of time there. And that was my current job, was working with them, trying to work, help them work through the issues that they had. So... So after I graduated with my four-year degree in psychology, I, it just made sense that I was going to pursue a career in the field of social work. So um, I applied to Stony Brook University for the master's program at, right out of college, and I had it all laid out. It was the plan. It was going to work. It was set. And it did not work. I was not accepted, which was actually very bizarre because I was practically a straight-aid student in college. And it was just one of those moments where it was like, it, it didn't make any sense that I didn't get into this program. It made no sense at all. And I was kind of at a point where, like, what do I do? You know, this was the plan and it was set and it didn't work. So I spent the last few months trying to figure out, like, well, you know, what, you know, what, what, how can I put my story back together again? How can I make this work? So I reapplied to that program. And at the same time, I started looking at f careers in federal law enforcement. I thought, you know, this maybe, maybe I do need to change gears here and switch my focus. So I applied for the Secret Service. It was a long 19-month process, and I was still trying to figure out if it was something I was going to enjoy doing as I was going through the process. And every step of the way, I kept passing each stage and being moved along to the next one. And actually, I think it was 19, about 19 months later, I received a conditional job offer with the United States Secret Service. And at the same time, I received a letter of acceptance into Stony Brook's Master's for Social Work program. So it was just one of those things that it was very strange the way it happened. And at that point, I was in a crossroads in my life because I had this over here that was, uh, you know, laid out for me that I knew I was going to do well at. I knew I would succeed in the field of social work and it was safe and known. And then I had this over here that was something that I did not know if I was going to be good at. I didn't know if I was going to like. It was a huge leap of faith. But eventually I decided to pursue the career with the Secret Service and I never looked back.
So you mentioned that there was kind of a surprise. Was there a particular person that you surprised the most in that situation when you finally decided to uh, join? I think that I was I was just really surprised because I am I'm a planner. I'm like I'm the type of person that I got to I want to strategize. Like I'm going to have it all laid out. I'm going to know exactly how it's going to look. And when it didn't work out, I was just I was really shocked. And then when I decided, well, I'm going to try something totally different, I was like, wow. But the people that really knew me the best, like my parents, they were just like, no, I mean, my, my father was like, no, I think this would be a really good fit for you. So, so, so people were torn. They was, some of them were like, wait, you're going to what? No way. And then the other people were like, yeah, that makes sense to me. That's totally right up your alley. So how did you find out or where did you go to apply to be a secret service agent? So I just started doing research. I was, I remember being in the library and looking through books and I found this one book on all the federal law enforcement agencies that were out there. And I started scrolling down and I saw U.S. Secret Service. And I'm like, well, what is this? I, mean, I didn't even know. I'm like, I, I, I said, I, I, I want to know more about this. This kind of sounds cool. I mean, just the title alone, Secret Service. So um, I started doing some research and looking into it. And I was like, wow, that is neat. Like, could I do that? Like, maybe, you know, maybe that's something I could do. And, um, and I, I, I did not think and you couldn't have convinced me that I'd be sitting here today the the way I felt then, you know, because I was just like, this almost seems too good to be true. This this seems exciting and fun and daring. And um, I just I I just didn't think that I could uh, get this. And actually, when I first applied for the program, the the agent who was kind of facilitating and overseeing my process, he was a nice guy. And he was he just said, listen, I don't want you to get your hopes up because one out of every thousand applicants becomes a secret service agent. So he sort of set that standard for me. Like he kind of leveled me. So I was, that's why every time I passed another phase to get to another you know, point on the hiring process, I was like, I'm doing this. I can't believe it. I mean, I might actually like, get this job. <laughs> So a little later in the episode, we're going to talk about your participation in the United States Secret Service's Kids First program and your partnership with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. However, but before we do that, I'd like to ask you, when you first applied and you were going through that process, did you even know these opportunities were there? I did not. When I saw the opening for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, I was still in the Protective Intelligence Division. Um, which I'd love to talk to you about a little bit about that if we have some time, because that was a very cool assignment. But I was I was um, in that position nearing the end of my assignment, and I saw the vacancy open for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And I'll say something that people still say today that actually gets on my nerves, but I understand. I did not know we had any mission in protecting children. I just didn't. I mean, there's so many different facets of the Secret Service. It's really hard to know all of it. But I was just like, wait, wait, we do that? So, yeah. So when that was presented to me, I was like, well, that feels like a real good fit, too. I want to try to pursue that. So, Joan, let's talk about that a little bit further, uh, about the Childhood Smart Program uh, within the Secret Service. The Childhood Smart Program is a program that's been established since 2016. It falls within the Forensic Services Division, which is where I am currently assigned. 
And it's an initiative that focuses on informing children and parents of the dangers of using the internet, as well as it gives them abduction prevention strategies. It's a joint partnership with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. And what that means is that the Secret Service delivers safety information that is, has been created by the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. The Childhood Smart Program heightens awareness regarding child safety issues, such as child pornography, online enticement, child sex trafficking, and child, child abduction. So what are the products that offer to the individuals that would like to participate in the program? So what we basically do is um, it started out as a small program where it was just at the time in 2016, it was just myself delivering these um, you know, presentations to uh, schools and communities and summer camps around the local area here in Washington, D.C. And it started growing. And it, it's basically it's it's presentations for eight, that are age appropriate for children. So, you know, the presentation that I'm going to talk to kindergartners about is not the same one I, I have for the seventh graders. It progressively gets more in-depth for the child's maturity level. Um, but it basically just covers all the things that are dangerous that are being done to kids online or that kids are inadvertently doing to attract potentially potential sex offenders. So we deliver those presentations and we also talk to the parents about, you know, the apps kids are using, how kids are getting in trouble or in dangerous situations, I should say. So, you know, it's, it's a very enlightening program. And I think that, I think that kids are becoming more educated because of it. I remember the first time I saw your childhood smart program uh, that was at the, the national stadium and you were doing fingerprints uh, for the children out there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, yeah, definitely. So um, we actually have a, a program called Operation Safe Kids that was established in 1997, and that was our first community outreach program. And what we do is we take parents' permission, we will take the children's fingerprints and photograph and create a document that we hand over to parents for safekeeping. In the event that the child should ever go missing, they now have, the, the parents now have this document that they can hand over to law enforcement enforcement that may be able to be used as an investigative tool. So we had that program in 1997, and at that time, it was the only one we had. That program's been around a long time. It's very well-received with the community. We have schools that will constantly ask us to come back to reprint kids or print new kids when the older, you know, when, the, when that wave of children leave the school. And it's, it's great. The thing with that program is, though, that it's more of a reactive type of program. You know, when I first came into this position, I did a lot of community outreach because that is actually the, the positive side of the job, you know, when you're dealing with crimes against children. So I did a lot of community outreach because that's what really felt good. I noticed, though, issues that kids are being faced with today, we weren't really able to address that in that short interaction that we had with the child while we were fingerprinting them. So it was that kind of sparked the interest to create the new community outreach program because that's what our youth needs today, education and prevention. So you have the fingerprinting program, you have the scalable program where you go out and educate school children uh, at different age levels about what threats could be potentially for them at their, and that's for something that they can understand at their age mm -hmm. and appropriate. Is there any other projects or things that you do? So you have, like, again, you have the, the fingerprinting, you have the educational things or any other items that you provide? To the community, those are our only two um, outreach programs that we have. Um, 
Although we did, um, I did work with our EAP section to create resources for our own employees to be able to um, sustain in these types of investigations. You know, we have polygraph examiners that are sitting across the table from sex offenders listening to graphic child sex abuse confessions. We have XSAP agents um, in our criminal investigative division who are um, looking at one, two thousands of child pornography photos, videos. And, and files. So we worked, FSD worked with EAP to create resources for our own agents so that they could mitigate any negative feelings that might have been occurring because of the, because of the work they're doing for us. Um, you know, there's things like secondary trauma and um, compassion fatigue and things like that, that af after a while, when you're exposed to this type of work, it can eventually wear you down. So um, that was a small initiative that I worked on, provide support to our own employees. Joan, do you mind going through the process of how to request these services for the listeners? Sure. Um, the program can be requested by any Secret Service field office, law enforcement, and private organization. All the requests should be directed to the Forensic Services Division or the respective field office. good way to reach us would be through our email. And we'll provide that for the listeners through the show notes. And uh, also any phone numbers that are provided, uh, we'll make sure that those are in the show notes for the listeners to be able to uh, use. Great. Thank you. So you walked us through the programs. Is there any success stories they might be able to provide uh, through the, the Childhood Smart Program or your relationship with the National Center of Missing and Exploited Children? Well, we have a lot of success stories from our community outreach program. Um, I can remember a few times after a presentation when I was approached by kids who would come up and make um, disclosures of child sex abuse. I like to think that these kids are hearing our presentation and it's clicking in their mind the things that are kind of being stirred up for them. And I feel like they're, they're thinking, hey, you know what? I am talking to somebody online or, you know, that relationship doesn't seem right or I don't think I should be pressured into doing this. And so we've had a lot of success stories where our employees, after they give their presentation, are being approached by kids and having kids, you know, tell them the things that are, that are going on with them. Is there any specific examples as far as how unique somebody came up to you after being educated through the program? Well, we had a, a presenter talk through an internet safety presentation. And I remember the next morning, a parent called uh, and left him a voicemail. The, the parent said, you know, I, I need to talk to you. My daughter was sitting through your presentation the day before. Um, and I just want to talk to you about a few things. So he called the parent back. And what actually ended up happening was after she had sat through his presentation, the, the section where we talked to kids about being groomed by online sexual predators really kind of resonated with her. And it sort of started to remind her of this person that she had been talking to online. Well, long story short, the parents ended up looking at the child's chat logs and realized that this was actually not even a, a, a boy. He was pretending to be a boy her age, but he was actually an older gentleman. So, you know, they ended up taking that to the police and there there was an investigation as a result of that. And then the child and the mom and the parents had a conversation about, you know, not keeping the phone in the room at night and being more careful about who, you know, they talk to online and things like that. So, you know, we look at that as a success story as well. And we've had a lot of stories like that.
The thing is, the thing I, I want to say about the success of the program is, you know, we can measure statistics, uh, rest statistics all day long because that's easy and it's quantifiable. But when we get, are out there giving our community outreach, it's hard to quantify how many kids are, are are safer because they're sitting in our presentation. You know, it's we can't say 45 kids are going to avoid abduction because they sat through one of my presentations. But when kids come one by one and share their stories like this of the people that they're meeting online and the, the situations that they're encountering, that's when we know that our program is doing something useful. So do you have anything for the listeners as far as tips or advice that you could give just on the podcast? We're going to link also to to the resources for these programs on our show notes too, along with the contact information. But do you have anything for the listener that they could easily overlook at home or with their family or something that may just spark in their head? They're just, oh, I never thought about that before. I think that talking to your kids early, active and often is the most important thing that you can do. It's never to early to talk to your kids about sexting and, you know, taking inappropriate, you know, videos of yourself or cyberbullying or anything like that. We, ha- we have people call the National Center all the time and say, you know, I'm involved in a situation, in a sextortion situation. I didn't want to tell my parents. I'm ch- I, I don't know what to do. Um, this person has, um, they have a few photographs of me. They're blackmailing me for more. It just seems like kids will do anything they can to avoid having to tell their parents that they've made a mistake. And I think that when you have that communication with children early on, maybe you can avoid those types of situations. So these, our social workers over at the National Center will call the parent with the child on a three-way conversation and explain to the parent what this child is going through because they just never felt like they could do that themselves. So communication is key. And do you provide that through your program, through your educational programs to say it's okay to talk to your parents about this stuff? Absolutely. We say it's okay to talk to your parents, but more importantly, we say to the parents, it's okay to talk to your kids. It's okay to to be upfront with your, your five-year-old about you know the body parts and what's appropriate touching, what's not, uh, you know, what's appropriate behavior, what's mean behavior and behavior that's not kind. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can reach your kids, but for some reason, parents don't always want to, you know, do that. It's not comfortable. Sometimes they feel like I'll just kick that can further down the road. Thank you for listening to this month's episode. The Secret Service's partnership with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, or the NICMIC, began in 1994 with the passage of the Omnibus Crime Bill, also called the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act. As a part of the bill, Congress mandated the Secret Service to provide forensic and technical assistance in cases involving missing and exploited children. Information we discussed in the podcast is located in the show notes. Until next month's episode, stay vigilant.